I love the book of Acts. It's a healthy thing every now and then to pick up the book of Acts and give it a good read. The apostle writes to us, the Lord working through his servant Luke. And um, you may recall how Luke begins the book of Acts. He, he says, in my former volume, Theophilus, that is to say, his gospel, in my former volume, I wrote about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And that's Luke's way of signaling, as if to say, now, in my second volume, the book of Acts, I'm going to write about what Jesus continues to do and to teach, not on earth, but from heaven, through the human instrumentality of the apostles and the church. As the gospel advances from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and we find ourselves in that unfolding story. Tonight, we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 16, one particular passage, and Lord willing, two weeks from tonight, we'll look at the following paragraph. But to set our text in a little bit of its literary context, you recall that Paul and Silas have just picked up Timothy, and they're on their way, a missionary journey. And they have an agenda. They think they have a good plan, and yet the Spirit blocks their way from going this way and gives them a vision through a man, through a dream, a vision, and says, I want you to go this way. And they interpret the vision as the Lord leading them to go to Macedonia. And they come to the Roman colony of Philippi, and you recall that they go down to the river to pray. And there are a group of women there, and Paul is speaking, teaching, preaching, giving the external call of the gospel, and inwardly the Spirit is calling Lydia and opening her heart to believe the gospel and gives her such a spirit of hospitality that she prevails on Paul and Silas and Timothy and welcomes them into their home. And behold, a new church is born, and the gospel continues to advance. And that's what we want for us as well, don't we? We want to participate in God's gospel mission. But tonight's question is, what should we expect? Now, maybe they didn't tell you this in the new members class. Maybe they told you about some very important things. But tonight we're going to learn some things that probably are not always covered in the prospective members class, but it's really important that we understand and have gospel expectations that are shaped by Scripture. Let me read the text for us. Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed 
turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is God's Word. Let me pray for us. Our Father, with the psalmist, we confess that the unfolding of Your words gives light. And we are dependent upon Your Holy Spirit to give light, to open the eyes of our hearts to see what You have for us in Jesus, what we can expect by participating in His mission. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What should we expect as we participate in the advance of the gospel? The text teaches us three expectations. First of all, expect to meet the enemy of Jesus, verse 16. Secondly, expect to see the supremacy of Jesus, verses 17 and 18. And finally, expect to share in the adversity of Jesus, verses 19 through 24. Let's take a look at these in turn from the text. First of all, expect to meet the enemy of Jesus. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Here's a woman who is trapped in a system of pagan worship. The pagans of the Greco-Roman world sought to gain knowledge of the unknown future by consulting omens and prophets And the citizens of Philippi consulted this slave girl because, the text says, she had literally, the text reads, a python spirit. That's the language underneath the English translation. A spirit of divination. It's taken from the world of Greek mythology because it was believed that the serpent python had prophetic powers able to tell the future. And she's trapped in this system. She's under the control of a demon. She spoke involuntarily to give knowledge for which people were willing to pay big-time money. And as a result, 
she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, at this point, perhaps if you're exploring Christianity, maybe, maybe you're new to our congregation, you're visiting. Good for you. Explore. Come and see. And maybe at the language of, of, of demonic activity, uh, you might, as many Westerners are tempted to do, roll your eyes and think to yourself, everyone knows that there are no such things as demons. Actually, the Bible teaches the reality of a created but fallen angel called Satan and his host of created but fallen angels called demons. And as such, these fallen spiritual beings are utterly corrupt and hostile to both God and humanity. And throughout the Scriptures, they are given various titles, adversary, tempter, evil one, father of lies, prince of this world, god of this age, to name just a few. And in the Old Testament period, demons were commonly connected with pagan worship practices, not only inhabiting and dominating Gentile nations, but also infiltrating and corrupting Israel during their years of apostasy. And so, for example, when we come to the Gospels, when Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God, He encounters a flurry of demonic activity and resistance. And as with Jesus, so also with the apostles, we were met by this demon-possessed slave girl. By the way, the Bible distinguishes between two kinds of evil. On the one hand, there are these situational evils that press against you from the outside. On the other hand, there are the internal evils, sin living in me, sin living in you, that overflow from the inside. And here's a particular case of situational evil. This woman suffers a situational evil. Now, as we come to this text, we must understand it within its larger context of the book of Acts. You recall the controlling theme right from the beginning, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And this promise of Jesus has an exceedingly rich background that is rooted in the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, God announces that He is filing a lawsuit against the false advertisers, the worldly religions that promise salvation but cannot deliver. And God will not abide his competitors. And so he determines to file a lawsuit to take the false gods to court and to call to the witness stand his people to bear witness to his glory. There's only one problem. God's people are blind to his works. 
and deaf to his words. And so they're unable to testify to his greatness. And yet God promises a cure. In the gospel, Isaiah 44, I will pour out my spirit, says the Lord. Isaiah 35, then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 44, do not fear, you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. And these promises that Isaiah the prophet could could make and see the fulfillment standing on tiptoe, looking down the corridors of time, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. God has opened our eyes. He's poured out His Spirit on His people. And through the witness of His apostles and His church, the risen Lord Jesus is confronting the false religions in Philippi and in Grand Rapids. And it's all right here. You see, here's the question. Who can foretell the future? Answer, only the God of Israel, because only He controls the future. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them. I foretell the future, says the Lord. I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. So it's within this larger context that verse 16 begins to make sense, doesn't it? The risen Lord Jesus Christ is confronting the false gods in Philippi. By the way, young people, these are very confusing days. And our heart as parents and an older generation goes out as we consider the challenges that you are facing. And you live in a world that is increasingly looking to the occult in disguise, to omens and the practice of divination. And beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and continuing through all of Scripture, God warns His people not to consult these mediums, but to listen to His Word through His prophet. 
That's one application. Here's another. God has opened your eyes as a Christian to see His salvation in Jesus to bear witness to His glory, to take the witness stand and testify to who God is in Christ. As we are going along, we will be met by people who are tripped up and trapped in deep darkness. And these are no ordinary moments. Jesus, as then, so today, is here to confront His rival enemy in order to set captives free. That's the first thing we learn from the text. Verse 16, expect to meet the enemy of Jesus. But there's a second gospel expectation. Verses 17 and 18. Expect to see the supremacy of Jesus. And the supremacy of Jesus is revealed in these verses in two ways. First of all, the announcement of the girl. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Now you recall that Jesus in His earthly ministry was confronted by demons who were compelled to announce His true identity. For example, Mark chapter 1, just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an unclean spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark chapter 5, at Gennesaret. When a man with an unclean spirit saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. Similarly, as the apostles break new ground, in their witness, Paul and Silas are confronted by a spirit who was compelled to confess their true identity. There's only two problems. Notice first, although the Spirit's confession was true, it was unhelpfully vague. In the pagan context of Philippi, the term or phrase, the Most High God, that could refer to any number of pagan gods. And each of these promised the way of salvation for some problem in living or another. But the second problem is that although the Spirit's confession was true, it came from an unreliable source. Dennis Johnson, just an outstanding and so helpful exegete of Scripture, unpacks these dynamics. This unreliable source to, to let the Spirit keep talking even truthfully, well, that's problematic because that would, that would give legitimacy to the Spirit. And so Mark reports, Jesus would not let the demons speak because they knew who He was. So for these reasons and more, Paul, did you notice, becomes greatly annoyed. Now, perhaps you, like others, think, oh my goodness, he ran off the rails. The Apostle Paul was greatly annoyed. 
I think it's holy spiritual annoyance. It's the fruit of the Spirit. There's a godly annoyance because this Spirit is not only oppressing this young girl, but He's also distorting their witness to Jesus. So the announcement of the girl begins to point to the supremacy of Jesus, but secondly, the expulsion of the Spirit. Paul turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. What's so remarkable is how unremarkable the description is. As Dennis Johnson puts it, there are no rituals. There's no sequence of secret syllables. There's no manipulation of talismans. There's no examinations of omens. Paul commanded, the Spirit submitted, any questions? It's very straightforward. And it points to the supremacy of Jesus. Only one thing explains the instantaneous result, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. By invoking the name of Jesus, Paul is he's doing things. He's showing his dependence on Jesus. He's showing the authority of Jesus. He's calling the woman and the bystanders and you and me tonight to faith in Jesus. So God's Word is fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 44, I am the Lord who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who carries out the words of His servants and fulfills the predictions of His messengers. And notice the wonderful outcome. A woman oppressed by darkness is set free from suffering. He's not only the Savior of sinners, but He brings relief to the sufferer, refuge. Do you see it? This is why Luke, at the beginning of his book, Theophilus, in my former book, I told you about what Jesus began to do and teach, but now I'm going to tell you what Jesus continues to do and to teach from heaven through the instrumentality of his apostles and the church. He's on the move. He's still working and setting captives free. Some application. This passage is aimed at your heart. It's like an arrow that takes aim at your heart, and God's purpose is to kindle faith in your heart in Jesus. On the one hand, it calls you to look back and remember that in His life and death and resurrection, Jesus has reversed the tide of war. Do you remember John chapter 12? Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from earth, I will draw all people to myself. One of my professors, Dr. David Powelson, calls it the ultimate cosmic exorcism 
This cross breaks Satan's hold over the world. So you look back and remember. But you also look forward in confidence. Yes, we face a real and formidable adversary. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. And throughout church history, it appears that demonic activity has been especially active on the front lines when the gospel is advancing, as here. But these demons are God's defeated enemies, so we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. And so we can expect to see the supremacy of Jesus, because greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. Gospel expectations. First of all, expect to meet the enemy of Jesus. Secondly, expect to see the supremacy of Jesus. And finally, expect to share the adversity of Jesus. Verses 19 through 24. I'll read it again. I want you to notice the very well selected, intentionally chosen verbs that Luke uses to describe the scene. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said... These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the locks, the stocks. Observation. Have you noticed that when the rule of God breaks in to save, the hearts of men break out in rage? Have you ever noticed that? These sufferings have a very familiar ring. These sufferings fit a very certain pattern. Did you notice? First of all, see how Paul and Silas suffer. The owners seized them and dragged them to the rulers. But their suffering fits the pattern of Jesus' suffering, doesn't it? In the garden, they seized Jesus and led Jesus to the rulers. Did you see how Paul and Silas suffer? The owners charged them falsely, hiding behind their pride and prejudice. But this suffering 
fits the pattern of Jesus' suffering. Before the high priest, then Pilate, the chief priests, accused him falsely. See how Paulus and Silas suffer. The crowd joined the owners in attacking them, but their suffering fits the pattern of Jesus' suffering. The crowd joined the chief priests shouting, crucify him. You see how Paul and Silas suffer. The rulers rushed to judgment, stripped their garments, and ordered a beating. But all of this fits the pattern of Jesus' suffering. Where Pilate rushed to judgment, and the soldiers mocked and stripped and beat Jesus. And you see how the ruler ordered Paul and Silas to be thrown into prison. But all of their suffering fits the pattern of Jesus' suffering. Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. And you see how Paul and Silas suffer. The jailer put them in the inner prison and locked their feet in the stocks. But all of that anticipates and fits the pattern of Jesus' suffering. When Joseph of Arimathea took his body and laid him in the tomb, the innermost jail of the tomb. How do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of these parallels? We make sense of these parallels by looking at how Paul himself interprets his own sufferings. Let me just give you a couple of examples from Paul's letters. In our responsive reading tonight, as we confessed our faith from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that letter begins by Paul saying, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And then he picks up on that theme in chapter 4 when he writes, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not given over to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. And he concludes, we are always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. We are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Do you see what Paul is saying? This is his theology of suffering. That a Christian's suffering, as evidenced in Paul and most supremely in Jesus, is the medium through which the gospel advances into the world. It's never willy-nilly. Our sufferings in Christ are the medium through which Jesus' resurrection life and power is expressed. Or take Philippians chapter 3, for example. Paul, in the midst of his testimony, says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I consider everything as loss 
is compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, for whose sake I have lost all things. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Now, that's a kind of a curious way of putting it. Because you might expect Paul to say, in a different sort of order. I want to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and then the power of His resurrection. But he flips it. Why would he do that? Because he wants us to understand that part of the resurrection power of Jesus is to conform us. To conform us into the likeness of Jesus' suffering. It conforms us into having a cross-shaped life. And through our cross-shaped life of sufferings, His power is advanced and revealed gloriously. Let me give you one more, and I'll close with this. Colossians chapter 1. Ever scratch your head when Paul says, Chapter 1, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking. What is lacking? In Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church. Here's how we make sense of it. Here's what is revealed in this text from Acts chapter 16. Paul's suffering fitting the pattern of Christ's suffering. Paul's controlling view. He understands that the church is united to Christ such that Christ's sufferings plus His sufferings equal one whole. It's not that there's anything lacking in Christ's sufferings on the cross in terms of its saving power in His death, but that it remains for the church to complete Christ's mission of advancing the gospel in the world through suffering. One of my favorite writers, Dr. Richard Gaffin Jr. puts it this way, Christ's sufferings plus the church's sufferings equals the total quota of sufferings necessary to push the redemption of Jesus forward to its completion. So let me give you a few implications and some final applications. And here I'm indebted to another one of my former professors, Dr. Michael Imlet, wonderful counselor, physician, faculty member for Westminster Theological Seminary. Fellowship in Christ's sufferings is not something to seek. It is a given. Expect it. Paul writes, it's a given not only to believe in Jesus, but to also suffer for His sake. Philippians chapter 1. Fellowship in Christ's sufferings entails more than persecution. It also entails your temptations, your indignities in this world, the infirmities of your body. Your suffering is actually the engine that drives forward God's redemptive story. Through our suffering, God is pushing back the curse. Your suffering reveals the power of Christ's resurrection because His power is made perfect in your weakness. Your suffering, far from being a threat, 
is actually what God uses to bring you into close communion with Christ. Your suffering does not call into question your identity as God's child. It actually confirms it, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. You are heirs with Christ Jesus as you suffer for His name. Did you hear that in the prospective members class? When you became a Christian, sadly, in our United States Western culture, we don't talk a lot about this, but I think we know we need to get ready, even as it is happening to us now. What should we expect as we participate in the advancement of the gospel? Expect to meet the enemy of Jesus. Expect to see the supremacy of Jesus and expect to share in the adversity of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, yes, we will. We will count all things as loss for the super thing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We want to know the power of His resurrection and be conformed into fellowship with His sufferings. That's what we want. And yet, to be honest, that's what we fear. And so we pray that your perfect love would cast out our fear and that you would help us, persuade us, convince us afresh that you are actually working through our sufferings to bring the kingdom to its consummation. Would you keep us faithful? Would you keep us from shrinking back? Would you enable us with Hebrews chapter 11 kind of faith to press into the hard and be faithful, we pray, for the sake of your great name and for the advancement of your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand with me as we close and sing together. A mighty fortress is our God.
Now may the God of peace, who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may He equip you with everything good to do His will, working in you what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. Amen. We will.